Today is the eighth and final message on the subject of lament, and this message also marks the conclusion of our study of the book of Lamentations. I'm fairly sure that if you were to take a poll within our church of what are the top 10 books in the Bible that you love, that Lamentations was probably not on your list. In fact, I heard from a number of you as we began this study, a number of you dared to ask, how long is this series going to be? (laughs) And I I knew what the question was behind the question. In fact, this last week I ran into a brother and he said, hey, is this the last sermon on Lamentations? And I said, it is. And he said, good. I mean, (laughs) it's been a good series. So... So for for many of you, you viewed Lamentations sort of like how you view Iowa. It's a nice place to travel through, but you just need to get through it, right? (laughs) Or Nebraska, or, okay, whatever. Just whatever's between you and the West Coast. Frankly, this series has been surprising to me. I I approached it with a bit of uh, apprehension because I knew how dark and foreboding these chapters were. And yet, somehow, over the last eight weeks, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to teach us some things, to help us, and to give us a a biblical place that we can go to when life is hard. The series has been heavy, and at the same time, I've been greatly encouraged how you, as a congregation, have listened, how you've engaged with one another, you've asked questions, you've even found unique ways to capture some of the beauty and the trauma of what's happening in the book of Lamentations. I saw a picture of someone's Bible posted online with some artistic ability just to capture the the beauty and the horror of this book. I know you've had opportunity to discuss Lamentations in small groups and You've had opportunity to engage in dialogue, even pushing back on how do we deal with particular things that are in tension. It's a special thing to study the Bible together. I don't know if we'll ever be back to the book of Lamentations again, but my hope is that it has become a book where you know now how to help your own soul when you're fearful or angry or burdened, or maybe you're able to better help someone else in the context of your relationship spheres to know how to deal with their pain and how to lament along with them. We began this series with four key aims, four reasons, four values of studying the book of Lamentations. Let me me review them with you. Number one, The reason we needed to study this book is because pain is inevitable, and I want you to be prepared. Some of you entered into a new season of pain in the last eight weeks. For some of you, this series is helpful as a category to think back of what's happened to you in the past, and for some of you, you're gonna need this series in weeks or months or years to come. Secondly, pain creates scary emotions, and I want you to know what to do with them. Because lament isn't linear, because grief isn't tame, because life isn't easy, emotions that will rise need to be dealt with, and lament as a category and lamentations as a book helps us. 
Third, sometimes pain doesn't go away quickly, and I want you to see lament just not as a path, not just rather as a path to worship, but as a path of worship. Lament doesn't just lead you somewhere, lament is somewhere. It's a place, it's a expression. It gets underneath the thing that has happened to us, and it looks forward to future restoration. And that's why, fourth, lamenting well provides a unique opportunity for Christians in regards to evangelism. As we have things that happen in the world or happen to us, we're able to interpret them and get to the thing that's underneath it, and then the ultimate restoration. So I hope that you now have a new category in your mind and heart, or maybe just a better category that is now more developed. I hope that you have learned the language of lament, and I also hope that there's some of you that during this season you've come to realize that you don't really know what is the thing underneath the thing. You've never really addressed the issue of your sin, and that perhaps in the last eight weeks you've actually crossed the line and become a follower of Jesus. Lament as a category helps us to know what to do with our pain. Over the last eight weeks, we've talked about a number of things. Last week, Tuesday, as I regularly do, I meet with a group of guys, we discuss the previous week's sermon, look forward to next week, and I ask them, what are some of the, what were some of the salient truths that came out of this series? And here's a couple of them that they mentioned. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Grace is only amazing because judgment is real. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. To lament is not to be faithless. Waiting is not a waste. And brokenness leads to mercy. So this has been a wonderful season. And today in Lamentations 5, we're going to wrap up this wonderful book. You might wonder, so where are we going next? Let me just give you a few highlights. The next two weeks, we're going to talk about the subject of the church. Next week, launching into our second annual covenant renewal. And then the week after that, with our Think Conference, you'll be hearing from Dr. Mark Dever on, is the church still necessary? And then with Easter approaching, we're going to take five weeks with Easter sandwiched in the middle, talk about evangelism and discipleship. After all, Easter, as you heard even this morning, is one of our greatest opportunities to invite someone to come to church. And then finally, we'll, on April 17th, start a new six-week series on the subject of heaven, entitled Finally Home, What Heaven Means for Earth. So in some respects, we're going from the dark, dark, dark aspects of the Bible to the really bright, bright aspects of the Bible in order so that you can be a balanced Christian. <laughs> Wouldn't want you walking around with a lament list in your life. I want you to be balanced. In Lamentations 5, there are three prayers. Three prayers. And this chapter serves as a distillation of the truths that we've seen in the previous four. It contains familiar ideas, familiar themes. 
There's 22 verses, but this chapter, unlike chapters one, two, and four, is not arranged by the Hebrew alphabet. There are a number of sort of staccato-like statements that pick up themes that we've heard previously. But what's interesting about chapter five and what sets it apart from the previous four is that there are a higher concentration of prayerful statements within this chapter. It is, in fact, the most request-oriented chapter in the book of Lamentations. It ends with three prayers, seeking God's help, seeking God's deliverance, and even though there is still uncertainty as to when or how, and even in this moment, even if God will help or answer favorably, those three prayers are significant and they're important, and they're connected to the use of the phrase or the terms, O Lord. Three verses that give us these three prayers. Chapter 5 and verse 1, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Chapter 5 and verse 19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. And chapter 5 and verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. You could think of these, if I could put them in modern-day vernacular, to be something like this, a prayer where you might pray, God, don't forget my pain. Like, you see what's going on, don't you? You ever prayed that? I'm sure you have. Secondly, while I'm in pain, God, I'm just going to remind my heart that you still reign supreme. I'm in pain, but you're on the throne. And then finally, as a prayer of God, we need you desperately. So what I want to do is unpack these three prayers and then connect them to the gospel and help you see the beauty of what chapter five is all about. First prayer, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. That first word, remember, in chapter five and verse one is as important as the word how was in chapters one, two, and four. Chapter five has the same level of outrage as the previous chapters, but the context for it here in this chapter is different. In this chapter, the outrage of the previous four chapters has now turned into a heartfelt prayer for God to remember what has happened to them. This word remember is all throughout the Bible and it really captures the essence of God's relationship with his people. It, it, it captures the essence of what it means for God to remember and to keep his covenant. For instance, after the judgment of God in the flood in Genesis chapter eight and verse one, the text says, and God remembered Noah. And that means more than just he knew he was in the ark. The idea is, is that God set his love on Noah. In Genesis 9, when God promises to never destroy mankind in a flood again, he, God said it this way, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. When the bow is in the clouds, namely a rainbow, I will see it and remember my everlasting covenant. That's Genesis 9, 15 through 16. When the Israelites sinned grievously with the golden calf, Moses pleaded with the Lord to be merciful and that he might remember his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob in Deuteronomy 9. 
And then David cried out to the Lord for mercy in Psalm 25, and he said this, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness. So the idea of remembering here is to ask God to be in his promises who he claims to be. The request here is for God to deliver them, and if you look at verse one, it's to remember what has befallen us. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. That word disgrace is another important word. It carries with it the sense of blame or being scorned or bearing the reproach from someone else. It's the the idea in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem that the people were ashamed of what had happened to them. They, They experienced divine discipline, and when they look around them, it's just devastating. And in fact, the word disgrace captures the emotion of something, frankly, that's even hard to talk about. There's probably many of you who relate to that word. You know that there's situations or circumstances in your life that are so hard and so painful that to even go there, words fail you. In verses 2 to 18, we get a catalog of the specific aspects of that disgrace, and we sort of see this picture of one thing after another. They're they're listed in rapid-fire summary. Let's look at verses 2 to 18 rather quickly. In verse 2, we see that the people are invaded. Their homes and their country have been overrun by a a foreign nation. In verse 3, they have been abandoned like orphaned children. They're fatherless. Their mothers are like widows. In verse 4, they're economically depressed. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Verse five, they're exhausted. There is this constant reality of destruction around them, and it leaves them weary and without any rest. Verse six, they are dependent. The nation that they had been in their sovereignty and looking then to other countries to try and deliver them has now backfired. Verse seven, they are disciplined. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Verse 8, there's social upheaval. Slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. Verse 9, they are desperate. Even getting bread constantly causes them to be in danger. Verse 10, they're physically sick. Our skin is hot as an oven and with burning heat of famine. Verse 11, they're assaulted. Their women are victimized. Verse 12, they're dishonored. The priests, or the princes rather, and their elders are disrespected and their position is no longer honored. Princes are hung up by their hands and no respect is shown to the elders. In verse 13, they're oppressed. Their young men are forced into labor. And in verses 14 and 15, there's no reason to sing anymore. Music has left the city of Jerusalem. Verse 16, they're ashamed. 
They've fallen from their prominent position. The crown has fallen from their head. Woe to us, they say, for we have sinned. Verse 17, they're grieved. Our heart has become sick for these things. Our eyes grow dim. In verse 18, they are devastated. Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl all over. You see how the word disgrace fits? What, what, what Jeremiah is doing is just from every angle showing you that there was nothing left here but destruction. Every aspect of the nation has been adversely affected. Really, everything was ruined. And the effect of this was that the nation's only hope was that God sees what is happening and that he hasn't forgotten them. They are staking their claim on God's promise to remember. Have you ever been in that kind of position? Ever felt like your life has just been so leveled that you're very aware that unless God helps us, I don't know how we're gonna do this another day? Ever had the thought that God I've cried so much, I'm in so much pain. Do you really know all of what I've suffered? Take your Bible and go over to Psalm 56 and verse eight through 11. Two weeks ago, our fighter verse, our scripture memory verse for the week was Psalm 56 verses three and four. which is a wonderful, promise-filled text to remember and memorize. But verses 8 to 11 combine the hoping of God or hoping in God with the assurance that our suffering is not wasted or pointless. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Don't you love that? And the idea is that there's not a tear that you've shed that God isn't aware of. Verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, along with Lamentations 5, shows us that there is great hope and great promise that God sees all of your tossings. He sees and knows all of your tears. He has not forgotten you. He will not abandon you. He is not against you. And Lamentations 5 reminds us that there's something enormously comforting about the fact that God knows. He knows what they've said. He knows what they've done. He knows where your kids are. He knows the pain that you're dealing with. He knows about the infertility. He knows how long you have prayed and asked God to change your situation or to change your marriage. There has not been one tear that you have shed that God doesn't know all about. And the beautiful promise of Lamentations chapter 5 is that even in the midst of great sorrow and great pain, we can call out to him and say, God, would you remember, which means don't forget. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean don't forget, but it means, God, would you be near and be real and be faithful to all of the promises that you've made to us?
Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Secondly, this next prayer is found in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. I love this short little verse in verse 19. The focus of it is on the sovereign rule of God over all things. And that's a really important verse to have in light of all of what we have just seen in verses 1 to 18. And here's why. Because negative circumstances have a narrative to them. Begin looking at all the things in your life, all the dynamics of what is happening, all of the hardship that's been brought your way, one thing after another after another, those things begin to tell a story. And by themselves, you might take all of those things together and draw the conclusion that life is totally out of control, or worse, that God is out of control. And yet, verse 19 is a wonderful and helpful pivot point. We've heard throughout the book of Lamentations about God's direct hand in everything, including the hard or difficult things that have happened to his people. For instance, in chapter one and verse 14, we heard, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. In verse 15, it says, he summoned an assembly against me. In chapter two and verse one, it says, the Lord has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. All of those things are designed to say that while Babylon may be the means of judgment, and while Babylon may be the means of discipline, that it ultimately was God who was behind all of it, that he was, yes, using even a sinful pagan nation in order to accomplish his divine purposes. So verse 19 is very short, but it's important. It acknowledges God's supremacy over all things, including pain. It acknowledges that the center of the center of the universe is the throne of God. And friends, there is nothing like suffering to remind you that the center of the center of the universe is not you and your happiness. And that's why suffering at any level or discipline at any level, whether it's discipline that's designed to awaken you to your sinfulness because you've done something wrong, or discipline that's just supposed to remind you that you're not in control of your life. Any of those things are beautiful and wonderful even in the midst of their painful realities because they remind us that he is God and I am not. This is the second but statement that has an important pivot to it. The first one was found in Lamentations 3 where it says, but this I have in mind, or but this I call to mind rather, and therefore I have hope. That led us to that idea of hope springing from truth rehearsed. But in this chapter, we have another but statement that is really a faith statement about who really is in control of all circumstances. So in light of everything that he sees and says in verse 18 about all of the devastation that has happened, now we have this statement, but, O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne to all generations. In other words... He's anchoring his heart in his belief about God's sovereignty. And I must tell you that what you believe about God's sovereignty and what you believe about his supremacy really, really matters in all seasons of life, but it especially matters when life becomes difficult. 
I mean, it's one thing to see the blessings of God, see the things where life is going well, and for you to thank God for his rule and reign over your life. It's another to see the hard things in life and still say, God, I thank you and I bless you somehow in the midst of your kind grace. This is good for me. I don't see how, but I trust you that you're in control and I'm not. That's when Christianity really comes alive. It's the weird thing. As wonderful as blessings are, as wonderful as the sun shining really is, the fact of the matter is Christianity is at its best when life is at its worst. So is there anything going on in your life today over which you might need to pray, the Lord reigns? Do you find yourself Abandoned, depressed, exhausted, desperate, assaulted, oppressed, ashamed? Has your life or some part of it been leveled recently? If so, I would suggest to you verse 19 needs to be where you live. Maybe you fill in the blank. God, I'm blank but you reign forever. How beautiful it is to rest in God's reign, especially when your city, your nation, your family, your life has been leveled. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Here's the final one. It's found in verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. The final and closing prayer of Lamentations is this appeal for restoration. The word restore means to bring back, to cause to return, to invite a previous position that was better, And in this context, it's the promise that God would bring his people back from their destruction. In fact, the word is so important, the word restore, that it's used twice in verse 21. He says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. The prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Take your Bible and go to Jeremiah chapter 29. This was likely written before the final destruction of Jerusalem, written to the exiles as a number of them had already been brought into the city of Babylon. And he records this message of hope that was offered to them. Beginning at verse 10, Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that Jeremiah is telling the people of Israel that despite what has happened to them, despite the leveling that has taken place in the city of Jerusalem, that God was gonna bring them back. But more than the restoration of their fortunes, the restoration of the people of God was ultimately about their restoration back to God himself. You see, this is the beautiful thing of what can happen when God has leveled you, when he's taken the crutches out of your life, is it makes you realize how filled with self-sufficiency we really are. And in the removal of those crutches and in the leveling of our lives, we are then put in the best possible position for us to cry out to God and say to him, would you restore me? And not just restore back my family or restore back my dream of what my life was supposed to be. It's like, would you restore me back to you? So the loss of the temple and the city or their identity was one thing, but the loss of the presence of God and the loss of the blessing of God, that was an entirely different matter. Their devastation and their loss was designed to awaken their hearts to the greater problem of their sin and their greater need for spiritual restoration. And that's what I hope happens to you. God took your job in order to awaken you that you can't live for your job alone. He leveled you in some other area of your life in order to awaken you, to remind you your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Your life doesn't consist in the little dream that you had of how your life was gonna turn out. Your life doesn't consist in a marital status or having kids that are just the way that you planned for them to be. At the end of the day, life isn't about all of those really good things. It's about knowing and loving him. Now, are those things wrong in and of themselves? No, unless they become the little crutches upon which we base our lives. Therefore, God delivered Israel over to their enemies in order to rescue them from themselves. The book ends with both verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? In verse 22, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. What's going on here? As best as I can tell, the book ends with this kind of tone, I think because the people have been exceedingly humbled and because they don't know the full story of God's plan. They don't know how it's all going to work out, and I think that in the midst of their humbling, in the midst of their desperation, in the midst of the weight of this discipline that has been brought upon them, they have come to a point where even their asking for restoration sounds different. Mark it down. When God levels you, you will pray differently. You won't come in acting as if you deserve an answer. You will come in to the throne room of grace in great need of mercy, but you will come with a different tone. This is the value of suffering, whether it's innocent 
or whether it's deserved, it changes you deeply. It changes how you see yourself, it changes how you see the world, it changes how you see the presence of sin in the world, it changes how you see brokenness around you, and it also changes how you see the glory of God, it changes how you see his holiness, it changes how you see his sovereignty over all things. That's why Lamentations is helpful, or reading a lament psalm is helpful, because it tunes the heart to seek the Lord differently. It causes you to see life through a different lens, which is why Lamentations 3 says, it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. So three prayers. Remember, O Lord, O Lord, you reign, and restore us, O Lord, that we may be restored. And then this brings us to the end of lament. Before we say goodbye to this book, I want to remind you that the same prophet who wrote the book of Lamentations heralded the day that was to come when God would deal once and for all with the problem underneath Jerusalem's destruction. So we have the leveling of the city of Jerusalem, but underneath the leveling of the city of Jerusalem is another problem, namely that the people of God keep going through this cycle in their life. They say they're gonna obey God, and then they do for a little bit, a little while, but then over time they drift and they move away from him, and this keeps happening over and over and over until eventually God says that's enough, and he levels the city, and the leveling of the city was designed to create within the people that there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something different that's got to happen than what has happened previously, and Jeremiah described it as the new covenant. We have a great privilege as New Testament people knowing the final completion of the story, and for that matter, we know the ultimate completion of the story in the book of Revelation. There's a reason why you have Revelation in your Bible. It's so that you know what's underneath the story and what's beyond the story. Listen to Jeremiah 31. Here's the promise of the coming new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. That's the difference right there. I will put my law inside them, he says. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their sins, and I will remember their sin no more. In light of lamentations, do you see how hopeful that promise is? Because no more sin and no more punishment and no more discipline is what was inaugurated in the person and work of Christ. It is what the people of Israel and Judah longed for. No more leveling of our city, no more wandering, no more having to 
wonder about what's going on inside of our hearts. Instead, we need some new covenant to come that will deal with the thing that's underneath the thing, namely our hearts. And this is where the gospel comes in. Through Christ, the problem underneath every problem has been addressed through Jesus because that ultimate problem is our sin. And the new covenant inaugurated in the work of Christ brings an end to condemnation and judgment. It brings an end to God's wrath. So Christ's death and his resurrection make it possible for us to be born again, for Christ's spirit to dwell within us, so that the effect of that is that we still live in a broken world, and while we live in a broken world, we look forward to the promise in God's word that one day, because of the work of Christ, all lament will cease. So Christ has come to deal with the problem under the problem, and he's come so that one day all of our lamenting will come to an end. Here's how it sounds in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. Think of that as the former order, the former world, the former leveling of the world has passed away. Do you know what that means? That means that you look at the book of Lamentations differently. You see dark clouds, but you know the depth of deep mercy. It means you look at the lament and the pain that's in this gloriously dark book, and you look at it through another rubric because you know that Christ came to bring an end to this. You know that the ultimate problem through Christ was solved because of his death, burial, and resurrection. So when you read lament, when you read lamentations, you read it through a lens of thank God, this is where I would be were it not for the work of Jesus in my life. See, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian, but not forever. Jesus bought our restoration. And one day soon, he will bring an end to all of our laments. And so we read the book of Lamentations and say, even so, come, 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 Lord Jesus, and bring an end, bring an end to all of our lament. Even so, Lord Jesus, we pray you'd come Pray you'd come even today. Thank you that you reign supreme over all circumstances and challenges and difficulties in life. We bow today underneath your sovereign and supreme rule of all things, and we know that while life is filled with innumerable pains, that you, Christ, bought the possibility of forgiveness and restoration for those who would put their trust in you. 
And so today, make us a people who are at one level sorrowful and yet at another always rejoicing because we know how the story ends. And we know the one who dealt with the problem under all problems. So thank you for this book. And thank you for a category called lament. But even more, thank you that one day there will be no more lament because you are king, because you reign over all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.